Welcome to the Faith Conservationist Podcast. As the world around us becomes more spiritually errant and toxic, cultural ecology is a pressing issue. The lush, abundant life available only through Orthodox Christian faith is ever more precious and in need of careful preservation. This podcast exists to help all people of goodwill understand, espouse, proclaim, defend, and celebrate traditional Christianity. The faith delivered once for all to the saints. Here's Pastor Brett. I'm going to begin this episode by stating baldly a particularly radical claim of which I have become convinced. We are in the midst of an epochal shift in global Christianity, the likes of which probably rival the Arian controversy of the 3rd century. The crises of the 3rd century gave us the Nicene Creed, the very definition of Christian orthodoxy over and against all other perspectives. How can today's controversies rival that? As I hope to demonstrate in three separate but interconnected episodes, there are multiple dynamics at work, and these dynamics force us into what I firmly believe is a providential interaction with and reliance upon other Orthodox or traditional Christians. A recent plunge into pastoral care books of a clinical nature proved to me that not merely the demographic but the intellectual epicenter of the church is shifting toward the global south. Western intellectuals are increasingly unaware of the Enlightenment's and now postmodernity's failings, but more dogmatic about its claims. In Western Europe and North America, what was until quite recently referred to generically as Christendom, Realignments of loyalties both within and across communions are ongoing. Scholars that would have pilloried one another as heretics in previous generations can now be found sharing lecterns, tacitly if not fully acknowledging the legitimacy of their rivals' theological perspectives. At one such event I attended, that bulldog of Southern Baptist doctrine Al Mohler quipped, I may believe my Roman Catholic brother is wrong to pray to saints, but in the heat of a cultural firefight, I am more likely to ask him to put a good word in for me than argue with him. Politics does indeed make for strange bedfellows. The question is, will Arius or Athanasius triumph in this round of church history? As we emerge from the season of Christmas, where we sang the familiar carols that not only praise but teach us about Jesus, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It is good to reflect that Arius not only waged his war against the incarnate Son of God at the Council of Nicaea, amongst the professional theologians, but on the streets of the Roman Empire, using his musical gifts to write songs that train the singer toward his own idiosyncratic and unfaithful interpretations of scripture. Knowing the power of music to catechize when sermons are long forgotten, 
Revisionists of all stripes have worked hard to replace hymnals that praised the God of Christian orthodoxy in orthodox ways, using orthodox language, with other hymnals that subtly, or not so subtly, push their own peculiar and thoroughly non-biblical agendas. How many hymnals have come out in your lifetime? Why was a new one needed? Was it the pressing demand for more organ music or new liturgies? Most congregations I have served are resistant to change, not demanding of it. More importantly, most congregations are unaware of the long-term dangers posed by such hymnals and will cheerfully sing songs espousing theologies they would run their pastor out of town for preaching. At least two congregations in the North American Lutheran Church, with whom I interviewed last year, used the ELW hymnal, which is thoroughly revisionist in its liturgies, hymnody, and pseudo-translations of the Psalms. See, Arius believed Jesus was a particularly worthy human being who had divinity bestowed upon him at his baptism. He flatly denied the text most of us heard read in church on Christmas. Quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unquote. If being a Christian means accepting the clear meaning of Scripture according to plain reason, Arius was not a Christian. I might have had a beer with the guy, but I wouldn't commune him, ordain him, or plan an ecumenical worship service with him. We don't worship the same God, and I believe his witness to be a false one, spiritually harmful to himself and the world. This month, we celebrate the week of prayer for Christian unity, and as we do, it behooves us to ask a question. Is a person a Christian because they claim to be? Or is more required? How much agreement is needed for us to work together? Mormons claim to be Christians, but they are theologically Arians. In their belief system, Jesus was born from a perfectly normal, one is tempted to say Greek or Roman style, physical union between God the Father and Mary, who is virgin no more. His obedience earned him godhood of his own, something we can aspire to through our obedience. For them, Jesus is not God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And so our salvation ends up being something we must earn. All heresy ends in some form of works righteousness. I would cheerfully serve alongside Mormons at the local food pantry, but I would not worship with them despite the fact that they believe themselves to be Christians. There is not enough common ground between us for us to praise God together. In fact, I would seek to winsomely evangelize them, teaching them the true gospel, of which I am not the inventor, but merely a grateful recipient. As we approach the week of prayer for Christian unity, we have reached the crucial juncture of this installment the opportunity for witness. Many wearing collars and filling the pews of American churches are functionally, or explicitly, Arian. Any variant of Jesus is mainly a great example for us is the false theology of Arius. Surely Jesus was an example for us, but since he was without sin, he is an example we cannot hope to emulate. 
Jesus' fundamental significance to us is that he is the incarnate deity, the spotless Lamb of God, both our high priest and the sacrifice rendered. And we need to hear this reality preached to us again and again merely to resist the maelstrom of our culture that seeks to blow us this way and that. The unity we are fundamentally to pray for as we enter the week from January 18th, the Confession of St. Peter, to January 25th, the Conversion of St. Paul, is the unity spoken of in Ephesians. Quote, Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God so that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 The witness we must give is evangelical. The faith we must witness to avoids parochialism by being Nicene or Catholic, small c, that is, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jude one three. Of course, Ephesians begins speaking of the hope of such witness by saying, quote, It was he, that is Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Unquote. There is a practical side to the question, with whom shall I partner in ministry? This series will explore the answer to that question more thoroughly in future installments. And now as we seek that unity, let us give praise to the Lord who is the author of it and proclaim to all the world in this epiphany season, praise to you, O Christ. Without oration and exaltation, we love and